um, very healthy the relationship with uncertainty <laughs> um, extremely healthy because that's kind of all we've got really uh, to a point we don't have much else uh, only guaranteed uncertainty Chris welcome to the Seeking Uncertainty podcast how are you I'm good yourself uh, living the dream as we've uh, as we said <laughs> as you've already said to me living the dream <laughs> No, it's class. I don't know how people are going to feel about listening to uh, Irishmen bounce off each other uh, and some of the undertones around uh, somebody from Athlone and somebody from Cork taking uh, taking lumps out of each other uh, in the background, but I'm sure we'll be fine. I don't, um, I don't think many people listening will know where Athlone is. Yeah, I think, well, uh, you drive uh, through it to get out of it. And, there, and, therein, <laughs> <laughs> and therein lies the problem. And of course, Cork is the centre of the universe, so... Uh, Absolutely, yeah. The Republic of the Republic, yeah. Yeah, that's it, totally. So, um, just for those who engage with the podcast, um, would you mind just introducing yourself and just give us uh, a bit of a flavour of your your background and coaching and maybe what your practice looks like now, who you work with, uh, where you work with them? Well, my name is Chris Kilmurray. As we said, I'm from Athlone in the centre of Ireland. Uh, I now live uh, for the last almost 15 years probably in the French Alps, um, which isn't too bad. And I work um, coaching elite level, now pretty much World Cup level only, uh, downhill mountain bikers. And the coaching journey is kind of spawned, as many do, from my own desires to improve my own performance when I was a very young rider and racer myself. So I suppose 20 odd years ago when I was in my late teens, mid-teens. Um, just went to went to college. Uh, what unit what's called university in many countries um and did civil engineering and found myself sitting in the library reading sports science books and not studying any civil engineering so after the first ex- batch of exams with civil engineering i s- kindly said that i'm off good luck this isn't for me um and i kept reading the sports science books and eventually went back and did a, a higher diploma in sport and recreation or sport education and recreation or some sort of hodgepodge of business studies leisure center management and uh, sports training in the athlone institute of technology and it just kind of spawned from there um kept riding racing myself moved over to europe to have better terrain to to ride um primarily just in a selfish kind of personal decision and went from there to the world cycling center to do like an intensive kind of six month coach education program over there which is only about an hour and a half from from where I live in France, um, across the border in Switzerland, and it just things slowly kind of spawned and steamrolled from there. Just started working with one or two riders I knew from back home who needed a coach. So kind of almost not on a volunteer level, but on a very cheap kind of um, semi-friend coaching level, and just slowly but surely went from there. So now I run and operate a company called Point One um, Athletic, and Point One obviously being Point One of a second because that's kind of what we deal with in downhill. Um, is tens of seconds and slowly but surely just worked my way into coaching um, the elite level of the sport really and not out of not out of a major desire to do so but more so out of helping for example a couple of you know young Irish riders that I knew from back home a couple of years younger than myself and helping them kind of transition from being completely uh, amateur working you know full-time jobs racing on the side and help them transition from that life into full-time professionals and still full-time professionals today getting paid to race bikes so i suppose i had a 
a knack for something or it worked in some way, shape or form that people got better at what, what they wanted to get better at, which was racing mountain bikes. And here we are kind of 15 years or 13 years down the line. So now I work primarily with uh, downhillers, um, which is this, the kind of the the shoulder fringe of, of cycling disciplines. We start at the top of the mountain, race to the bottom as fast as we can on some pretty wild terrain. Our kind of closest cousin sport would probably be alpine skiing. Uh, but the terrain is a lot more varied for us and the tracks are a lot more varied than you'd get for um, the speed disciplines in alpine skiing. Um, and I find myself trackside and in the pits and everywhere else at the uh, at all of the World Cup downhill races. And in between the races and during the off-season, then I'll travel to meet the athletes where they live or they'll come to me or we'll have training camps and team camps in different spots. And the sport itself is kind of progressing and developing in terms of budgets available and just general professionalism across the board from physical preparation to psychological preparation to aerodynamics to everything else. So we're kind of at a bit of a transition period at the moment where my role is even changing and evolving a little bit in terms of what, you know, what true impact I can have on performance. Um, so maybe hard to know down the line, maybe I'll just transition to more of a the middleman role where I may or may not be the SNC, I may or may not be the technical coach, I may or may not be the shoulder to cry on, I may be everyone's shoulder to cry on that's pulling all of the multidisciplinary team together, or I may not. It's hard to know exactly what direction things are going in at the moment, but things are definitely changing, which is cool. It's good to be a part of it. And we've had some good racing this year. I've been involved in some good good stories, re- recovery and rehabilitation from big injuries and um, continued injuries and uh, some big ups and downs and lots of riders transitioning and progressing from the junior categories up to the elite categories so it's it's interesting if nothing else even though it's you know one sport one discipline it's definitely um varied uh, it certainly sounds like that and look uh day job uh, i have the benefit of working for the national agency for sport and i've had um several touch points over the years with um high performance sport and talent development in the context of my work. And uh, it strikes me that uh, the level of support um, surrounding coaches and athletes in those environments is significant, well-coordinated, uh, well-invested and, and well-resourced. And I suppose my observation of what you've just said there, it, it, it strikes me that you might be fulfilling the role of a psychologist uh, snc nutritionist uh, uh, lifestyle advisor all all wrapped up into one can we un- unpack that a little bit what does that look like on a weekly basis for, for you as a as a coach that perhaps isn't associated with a national governing body or a national agency or a sport institute um i suppose it means that if i want if i need someone to lean on to help to make sure i do the best job possible for the athletes which is the ultimate goal reason I'm there then I need I need to make and cultivate my own network that's the reality of being in a professional sport that's developing and doesn't have the huge resources but that even if you do have the huge resources that's essentially the reality I think if you talk to someone that does a similar job to me in performance coaching I think is what they call it in Formula One and motorsport where you kind of do a little bit of everything um they even though they have you know million dollar budgets they'll probably be in a similar role where the the performance coach or the SNC there needs to le- create their own network to lean on. So that's kind of where I'm at at the moment in that I, I'm called upon to do a little bit of everything. I'm referred to as dad by a lot of the writers because <laughs> I just come in and fix things, you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, like 
I need to have a very good general knowledge of many of what would be considered the multidisciplinary facets of performance, uh, nutrition, psychology, um, planning, periodization, logistics, uh, physical preparation, warm-ups, and everything has a thread of everything else running through it. So it's not a case of like the silos of performance development just don't exist in our world and probably shouldn't exist in any world. And that there's no point in me just having, you know, a real excellent grasp of a couple of core psychological theories that I can deploy with the athletes and then having absolutely no notion of how many grams of carbohydrates they might consume in in the next you know 90 minutes because I need to know all of those things because someone will ask me and it, frequently especially now we've had a, a change in organizers and television providers and everything else for the sport and um, for the next eight years we have Eurosport Discovery coming in running the show and um televising it and that that's meant rule changes scheduling changes that sort of stuff and the athletes invariably just look to me as the guy that has the right answer or the guy that that will you know do due diligence in terms of finding out the right answer about what the rules are you know is there a bit of ambiguity around x or y and that sort of stuff so yeah my role covers everything from the most basics of hey my warm-up doesn't feel great can we modify something to how much of this new sponsor's carbohydrate drink should I drink? You know, or is it safe to drink? Is it banned? What does the water list look like this year? Um, I've had a huge crash. My head has exploded, not figuratively, not literally, although we do have literal head explosions as well. Um, you know, uh, how can I regroup for finals that's coming up in three hours? Um, I want to go as fast as possible and this other girl is riding faster than me. How do we solve that problem in the next day and a half? Like, yeah, so the, the it's just a, a permanent performance puzzle that I'm involved with um, solving with the athletes, which means that I need to create, yeah, so a big multidisciplinary team of specialists around me that I can call, email, ring, discuss with, lean on, that sort of thing. So what my role actually is, I don't fully know. It started off primarily as physical preparation, and now it's something else, with physical preparation being... Maybe the most important, one of the most important strands still, but maybe the easiest now that I'm experienced enough to realize that physical preparation just really isn't that complicated. I'm sorry. <laughs> the, um, the performance puzzle, I love that. Um, I really love that. And I, I guess there's a there's a question for me swilling around my head. Um, Recognising that sometimes. Uh, within a, a an overly resourced team or a heavily resourced team you're aligned upon to personal relationships to make things work mm. that that ultimately is the interconnecting tissue around how effective the interventions are in and around the athlete to meet wants and needs on a on a on a performance basis is there in some ways a benefit to you not necessarily relying on those interpersonal relationships in order to um uh, meet what your athletes needs are is there a is there a benefit or a, or a performance advantage to you as a coach not reliant on other people but simply reliant on yourself to seek out the solutions to those performance problems that you're facing yeah like 100 percent, because you probably know the answer anyway yourself from having experienced something similar and many coaches will there's definitely there's definitely periods and points um maybe more on the micro scale where like this decision needs to be made and if it's made in the next 25 seconds it'll be better and I'm just going to make it with them or for them you know or if they're asking me to make the decision and we have to refer out and 
discuss and as you said, yeah, personalities and interpersonal relationships and everything else. So there's definitely advantages to it, but there's obviously then the case of your blinkers are on, your you know, one track mind, your decision making skills aren't as good as you think you are. Um we've all got our own biases that go with our heuristics and together they make bad things. <laughs> so yeah, there's there is advantages to it for sure. And then you've kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of my role as being the the, the poly nerd, as I call it, the, the multi-coach, the poly nerd, um, in that interpersonal skills and helping the athletes cultivate relationships and being aware of my place in everyone else's relationships is a big part of the job. Being very interpersonally skilled and being able to slide your own ego aside and, you know, have, I suppose as the saying goes, have thick skin, even though you shouldn't really necessarily need thick skin. But having that when necessary and helping the athletes navigate that sort of thing. And, and even most recently, the last couple of seasons, I've had scenarios where for sponsorship reasons, for financial reasons, sponsors, teams, other teams get involved, whatever else with riders. And primarily ethically, I see other people that are now involved with riders that I've worked with for X number of years and cultivated in a really strong relationship with. I see new people coming in or people that want to be involved probably primarily for the victories for the glory and i just see at at the ethical level they're just not there they don't even they're not even aware that ethics exists in sport they're just aware that medals exist and i'm just like right so this is this is just fucked from the outset anyway because you're aware of victories and financial benefits not aware of the that ethics apply to to sport you know so i see things like that pretty regularly and it's like what can i do there's nothing i can do really i can't upset the athlete or i have to wait for three or four seasons to pass until the interpersonal relationships are fully defined and we've seen what everyone is and isn't capable of and everyone's financially settled in terms of new sponsorship relations or whatever it is and then i can go in with the the oar or the boot <laughs> if needed uh, but even then you have to be tactful so yeah it's it's really really interesting and on the flip side of that there's so many amazing people that work at the races at, at the downhill races from physios that work for red bull who work for, with many athletes from physios that work privately with teams that'll help out other teams if their physio didn't show up to cooks and chefs and mechanics and other people that operate trackside so you, you know for us the teams have limited budgets, so you might have a coach like me videoing trackside to do analysis of lines and trajectories and, and everything else, you know, a bit of performance analysis. Other teams might have the social media person that, that runs the social media accounts doing that as well, um, because that's just, they're the best person for the job. They're an ex-rider. They're good at the camera. They need to be on there anyway. So there's lots of these personal relationships where everyone will help each other out. And it's kind of a the classic case of a, a rolling circus and a rolling family. So we've got, yeah got everything from very nice interpersonal relationships that are developed organically over a decade to people coming in with zero ethics to people that you you know you don't really know but you do know who will help you with anything for no for no good reason other than they just want to be friendly and helpful so yeah we've got the whole the whole gamut of gambit of uh, interpersonal relationships yeah what does ethics look like uh, in your world uh unspoken non-existent at times um what what i suppose what my view on it would be when i zoom out and think about the whole the whole the whole pits the whole rolling circus of teams and officials that organizers the whole everything i think 
we're all inherently aware of ethics from our own cultures just it's just part of being a human there is you know cultural standards which lean on or are part of our ethics and everything else um and so when it comes to like rider safety track safety that sort of thing there's the ethical tread that that runs through that fine but not not very defined and organized and then when it comes to performance teams salaries interpersonal relationships all of that sort of thing it's like kind of for, for some people it's non-existent they're not even aware like i said that ethics exist in sport or should exist and then like for me the reflection on everything in relation to performance the first three races we've had this year was that ethics just drives the bus for me that's it like i didn't realize it until recently but that's like it's pretty much like if if i have a a bit of um wishy-washiness in my head about a decision that's to be made like if there's an ethical stand to one a, a better ethical viewpoint for one side to one decision that's probably where i'll lean as opposed to performance you know what i mean because that's that's just the realities you know and that even comes down to like athlete autonomy just them making their decisions not me unless they explicitly ask me to make the decision you know so no for sure and the, the types of decisions that athletes are making i i'm assuming uh have a degree of um of risk uh, around them because some of the decisions they make some of the runs they might go on some of the cornering they might do might have a a catastrophic outcome in the context of your sport because it is so high risk is that is that fair yeah i think everyone's by and large well everyone i work with at least anyway luckily for me uh, are very competent like genuinely world-class operators in terms of their bike riding ability so crashing in the risk is like it's it's ever prevalent it's accepted it just has to be accepted you can't roll into the start gate for practice or qualifying or finals without having accepted the risk and if you've not accepted the risk you won't go very fast um but it's kind of like the risk will just crashing can just happen either through bad decisions through bad luck or through bad preparation that's kind of the 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 main areas where a crash will happen or the main reasons the drivers behind crashing and injuries and the severity uh, of an injury is kind of pot look almost you know crash in an awkward spot and bang and get it you know get a big bruise in your hip versus crash in the same awkward spot and catch two fingers in a rock and snap them off it's exactly the same crash but you know you've you've had a season ending finger snap versus a bruised bum which you'll forget about in an hour you know so yeah there's lots of kind of um uncertainty unknowns around the nature of the risk but there's lots you can do to manage it in terms of preparation in terms of that sort of thing there's lots you can do to manage it and then when it comes like back to the ethics of my job when i'm trackside videoing the riders i work with videoing other riders for analysis finding out what the fastest line is finding out what everyone's doing in a particular section understanding how the track's developing and degrading and evolving to help the riders build the best race room possible all that sort of stuff like there's no from from my point of view from my coaching style my ethics from everything else like there's no there's very seldom i'm just like you must do this you know it'll be like look based off the analysis we've done this line is definitely looking faster and you know that you prefer to carry speed going around the outside versus you know a heavy brake check and trying to nibble on an inside awkward line whereas some other riders would have a preference for the opposite to that so it'll be based you know decisions would be rider-led kind of coach informed type thing and i think yeah the risk is just ever present so 
whether the risk actually comes into it'd be it'd be discussed it'd be spoken about in terms of look yeah that's definitely faster but you know how much risk is involved basically and i think where that would for a lot of the elite men it's not really a, it can be a non-issue because they do all the same lines they do all the big jumps to do all that sort of stuff it's for say the developing females so junior riders coming up from elite in the female category um they may or may not have developed solidified the skill set yet to do all of the jumps on the track or all of the big features on the track so they may be in a transition period where they're working their, their way through doing all of the features on the track you know early on in practice or having them ticked off ready for qualies or finals that sort of thing so then there's a you might get it oh do you think i'm ready to do that and i'm just like not my <laughs> bad question not my not my <laughs> not my answer to give you know like i'll just throw the question straight back at them like well are are you ready and why are you ready or not ready is you know as how i'd reframe that so yeah the at least from my perspective there's not a whole pile of very explicit um coaching when it comes to the risky business there will be explicit coaching when it comes to i'd prefer if you had 90 grams of carbs in the next two hours versus 60 you know what i mean so there you go and then obviously there's a flip side i see people track side doing my role doing a coaching role although coaching is in inverted commas because if, if it's void of ethics it's not coaching and they'll be basically like yeah go left go right turn stop left left right like literally just ride the bike for the rider which to me makes no sense whatsoever because everyone's their own pilot you know no, it's it's um that's a fascinating perspective and it's interesting to hear that there are actually coaches out there within your world who are uh, as you say trying to pilot the bike uh, on behalf mm. of the athlete and um, I guess you you touched on the word uncertainty in that um in, in that last piece and I'm keen just to understand what your relationship with uncertainty uh, is like in terms of your coaching more broadly um very healthy the relationship with uncertainty <laughs> um extremely healthy because that's kind of all we've got really uh, to a point we don't have much else uh, only guaranteed uncertainty it's ever present um in mountain biking in downhill mountain biking which is i suppose considered it would be considered an extreme sport that that term doesn't really exist anymore that's a 1990s term extreme sports um there used to be a tv channel i think extreme tv or something um which is tv's gone now it's tiktok only um so now i think it'd maybe fall into the action sports category but we'd probably actually have elements of our performance that's closer to motorsport the classic you know performance analysis data acquisition aerodynamics that sort of thing um becoming more prevalent and then we obviously have sister disciplines of free ride and freestyle with lots of tricks and jumps and that sort of thing so we've got a mixed bag culturally which means that the uncertainty around most things and the outcomes of your decisions are is just it's just a given and i think i, I work with some people that really really struggle with the nature of I just, they don't know that philosophy exists, right? Let's get philosophical, right? So if I said to them, I think, I think I'm leaning towards critical realism, they'd be like, you're leaning where? <laughs> you fell off what? Like, you know what I mean? Um, so the, the, the notion of philosophy and the notion of the nature of knowledge and the, the certainty which we can operate off in terms of our decisions um, in the sport is just, it's, an, it's unknown. People don't realize that 
people discuss and talk about the, the nature of knowledge and uncertainty for the last you know millennia and for for me like we can make all the best decisions and focus 100 percent on the process and the rider can fall in the first turn of race runs um the rider i i had the case that happened last year rider crashed in the first turn of world champs first corner in front of me and, and the mechanic and then we were just like well there you go there's a whole week's work just what can you do you know that's that time for beer time for ice cream um and on the flip side you know i work with riders who've progressed from you know being at the fringes of the top 10 to winning six or seven world cups on the trot to four major injuries back to back and you know when you're in the midst of winning races back to back battling every weekend for the victory against some of the best riders ever in the sport you just kind of look at you look at the whole process and yourself as being the ultimate coach and the riders being invincible and then mother nature comes and slaps you right upside the head and goes nah collarbone nah leg nah concussion nah concussion number two sorry done you know i saw it like i i think for me anyway in, in terms of my coaching philosophy i fully appreciate the complexity of the world and humanity and fully appreciate the non-linearity of most of our decisions so inputs input x will not lead to output y every day of the week it will well we go back to our 90 grams of carbs example it can lead to a similar output from an input like but not always like you know Tadej Podikar underfed himself he's got the best nutritionist in the world he underfed himself and tour de France stage 17 and that was the end of his tour de France you know um so simple inputs don't lead to the same outputs all the time and I'm very very aware of that and uh, so yeah I'm happy with uncertainty and I suppose as I progressed as a coach tried to figure out a framework myself to know the impact of the uncertainty maybe so the idea of known knowns known unknowns and unknown unknowns kind of like the kinefin framework type decision making thing in that like look this this scenario here is just fighting fires we don't know what's going to happen and we don't really care because all we can do is just fight fires for the next day week month year whereas you know a scenario whatever someone's had a, a bad crash broken an elbow or an arm we know how to manage that and they may be back at x period or they may not or concussion we need to manage it this way for the first couple of weeks and see x y or z so you know we can have an idea around how to manage uncertainty and then there's also uncertainty which we can't manage in any way shape or form and i think it's just either arrogance or naivety around uncertainty is what will get you crucified it'll get you absolutely crucified in a sport like downhill i think arrogance and naivety in say endurance sports where coaches will lean incessantly on the handful of data points from training peaks and invariably you either get a genetic beast as an athlete who will just you know not crack and be fine and win all the races or you just get people who are genetically poor or have a poorer environment or a poorer uh, culture or lifestyle around them and they'll crack um, ev eventually because that's basically all that will happen when you just keep pushing endurance athletes they'll either win or crack um so they operate in, a, in a, an environment where they can be naive around an uncertainty and lean on the genetic marvels. Uh, whereas I operate in an environment where uncertainty, no matter how good you are genetically, you'll just break a bike or break a body eventually. That's just it, you know. So I think maybe somewhat, I remember, I remember being less humble around my abilities and the nature of uncertainty in my early years at the World Cups, thinking I was... Because I was doing certain things different to other coaches or doing things that other people weren't doing in terms of how we were analyzing runs and performances and stuff. Thinking we had, we had it all figured, we were going to figure it all out. Uh, and then relatively swiftly, the sport was just like, nah, 
sorry. <laughs> sorry, you're getting injured. And that's just it, right? And now everyone's getting injured, and now you've got four athletes instead of ten, you know. So there you go. No, for sure. And look, um, there, there's quite a lot to unpack in that. Um, and I think back to one of the early exchanges in this conversation when we perhaps talk about how much control we actually have over performance as coaches and the reality, you know, you work uh, uh, within an individual sport that is um, downhill uh, mountain biking. I work in an invasion team sport that that's rugby and we can do all the work around preparing the athletes for um, that performance, either going down the hill for you or, or crossing the whitewash for me. Um, but we have no influence, absolutely no influence, what's ha- what happens once the, the whistle is blown or, or the athlete crosses the start gate. Um, and I guess, similar to you early on in, in my career as a coach, I tried to control so many aspects of, of performance. Um, and maybe there was a sense of, of arrogance, um, definitely naivety that uh, I could do that. Um, and as I continued to evolve and my practice began to unfold um, it became less around um, making decisions that uh, I could predict an outcome of uh, and it became more around what's the best guess based on the best available evidence I've got around supporting what decisions athletes might make in context Um, but equally um, my tightly held beliefs about who I was as a coach, my coaching practice and coaching knowledge just went. Um, but ironically, so too did my confidence in myself as a coach. Mm. I, I went through a three, four year period um, where uh, I was crippled with anxiety and self-doubt around every decision I made, every uh, interaction I had, um, every conversation I had uh, with athletes or other coaches. Um, and and I think all coaches need need to go through that that period to to recognise that, um, geez, it's not all on you. Yeah, yeah, totally. Do yeah, you think it'd it, be it'd be better for us as coaches if we there was like some sort of a a more understood or defined support network for that period? In that, like, look, you will go through the period of crippling doubt and anxiety because I went through it as well, or I continue to go through it in little bouts potentially. And it's probably led more so by life away from coaching, but it filters into coaching type thing. And yeah, I don't know, like, just need the coaches' union <laughs> to support each other. Well, well, look, in in some cases, a governing body fulfills that role, but it it it, it strikes me that you don't necessarily have that network available to you within no. the realms of professional sport. And I, and I guess one of the questions I was going to ask, you know, you're you're there trying to solve the performance puzzle for the athletes, but who's supporting you? Um, uh, deal with the performance puzzle for you and in, in, in your world because um, several researchers have cited that the coach is a performer too yeah, um, 100%. Uh, and to what extent are we or you seeking support to develop your performance uh, as a coach what what does that look like for you in terms of seeking new knowledge um, developing your practice developing confidence in yourself, supporting your well-being, dare I say it, as a coach, because it, yeah, it yeah. is a difficult world to exist in. Yeah, especially with the travel. Like, I suppose I, the last couple of years post-COVID, I've traveled a bit less. 
But prior to that, I was racing myself. I was traveling to two different series of events, so the World Cup and the World Enduros. So, you know, and I was I was doing coach education stuff on the side. I was doing all sorts of things. Um, so I was up to 25 weeks a year traveling. So it's just, that's huge. Like, and now, now I've, I've got kids now since. So it's, it's no longer possible, feasible or desirable. Um, but yeah, the, the travel is probably actually one of the harder, the more physically harder aspects is recovering or being on form for the family when you come home after three weeks on the road. And you're like, yeah, well, I didn't, I didn't do much the last four days, but I'll be fine. And then you kind of just hit a wall. And you're like, I'm Jesus. You have full on like post event syndrome. You should call it. I think that's what it should be called, post event syndrome, because the athletes experience it as well, like the emotional, the emotional download from from the events, because because they're so emotionally charged, and they're so easy to deal with at the time because you're on a schedule. That when you don't have the schedule and you don't have the emotions, the body definitely autonomic nervous system is just like, what the fuck is this? You know, so I think for me, like when you say the coach is a performer, of course we are. Everyone's a performer. And if, if everyone within the the sporting performance environment treated themselves like a performer, we'd all be a lot better off. But there's a lot of people there that just drink bottles of red wine in the evening and, and hang out and, you know, um, badmouth other people and that sort of stuff. <laughs> so I think I personally, like to answer your question, personally, I treat myself as... <sighs> Less so recent years, but I treat myself as as a performer, almost as an athlete at times in terms of sleep and nutrition and my own physical. So there's two things that underpin my coaching performance um, at the basic level, and that's sleep and, and exercise for myself. So like sleep's like non-negotiable. And I've also got a, a good, um, I made a good name for myself as being the sleeper, being able to sleep through earthquakes and hurricanes and fire alarms and break-ins and everything else i've slept through it all <laughs> so i'm good at sleeping which is fantastic for coaching because i i wake up pretty much you know i can wake up at 5 a.m at the races refreshed you know which isn't the case for a lot of people they're just not that lucky genetically or whatever else um so i think for me treating myself as a performer sleeping well eating well exercising a lot riding bikes a lot experiencing the mountains experiencing somewhat what the athletes experience in terms of riding downhill getting those sensations, feeling the bikes and the product and that sort of thing, having having that kind of um, shared experience, experience to lean on, especially when then you're using the vocabulary and the lexicon of the sport and the athletes know it's quite authentic because you've actually experienced it very recently yourself type thing. So yeah, broader than that, wider than that, then having, I've just had to cultivate a, a team of friends, colleagues, peers around me to lean on really and that's why i use twitter for that primarily that's the primary reason uh, i get myself into fights on twitter is because actually it's, it's it is a great platform if, if you're able to disassociate yourself from the arguments and the the the, the, the unnecessary polarization and dichotomies uh, it's actually a great platform to reach out like you and i just you know wouldn't probably know each other if it wasn't for for twitter you know so it is a great platform in, in terms of sharing experience or realizing that other coaches are going through what you're going through even just vicariously looking at other coaches' accounts, you can see, oh, yeah, like so-and-so coaches hockey, but she's going through what I'm going through. It might be hockey, but it's the same problems, you know? Um, so, yeah, I think cultivating the foundations is sleep and nutrition and exercise and then cultivating people around me. And like even yesterday morning, I had a good conversation with some researchers who were doing some visualization research in motorsport. So we shared ideas around that. And I've got, you know, dietitians I, I lean on work with um can outsource work to if necessary or outsource ideas to at least and 
all that sort of stuff. When it comes to the really, you know, like you talked about the anxiety, the almost depression or the uncertainty and the, the, the feelings of inadequacy around your decisions and your ability to coach, that's considerably harder. Like even if you have a really supporting partner or spouse or whatever, if they're not, if, if their job doesn't involve the level of human interaction that coaching involves with and the level of interpersonal relationships that need to be managed, it's, it can be difficult for them to grasp the nature of, of the problems you're facing, you know, definitely. Especially because like, like you'll understand, like I'm sitting there writing a training program or answering a question. And I'm like, fuck me, the, this answer or this two weeks of planning that I'm doing for the athletes, like this, this has an enormous impact on their life in some ways or it can do or maybe I'm I'm overestimating the impact so yeah learning learning to be less naive and learning to be more compassionate to oneself less naive around the gravity of the impact of my decisions in either direction and more compassionate to oneself I suppose is the two things I've learned most recently really yeah um well, so there's something I just want to lead into a little bit here. Um, and, and full disclosure, I've done uh, a little bit of research around um, conceptions of, of well-being within world-class coaches and how they experience um, moments where their well-being has been compromised as a consequence of their work. Mm -hmm. the, these were regular moments is what i'd say <laughs> re, reg, reg, regular moments and look at there are stories of um of, of coaches you know ballooning to to 20 stone because they you know they don't take care of themselves there are stories of um one one quote stands out to me that you know the closer i got to a competition i became a, a worse father and a better coach um, mm -hmm. and that's that's accepted yeah. Um, within the context of that work, there's there's a story of a coach who had to be locked away for 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 24 hours for his own safety because uh, physiologically his body broke down, he collapsed, he was yeah. absolutely fat. Um, and it strikes me that you've got a healthy balance in terms of how you take care of yourself, but of course, within the context of look at uh, you're you're coming to a world cup next week uh, in in Scotland uh, in Fort William um there will be an intense uh, level of demand placed upon you uh, as a coach throughout that competition how do you set those boundaries how do you contract with the athlete to say this is when I'm on this is when I'm off or do you accept that you're at their beck and call and therefore your well-being your routine, your protocol of how you take care of yourself might be compromised uh, within the context of of that week, that two weeks, or whatever it is. Yeah. So, so is that negotiated with the athlete to say, well, actually, I need this for me, or I'm I'm always available, I'm always on, and recognizing the impact that that might have on you for a few days as you try and reintegrate back into your to your life at at home with your family. Um. So I can only answer personally, really, obviously. Um, so I, I manage it probably quite explicitly, unknown to myself until you ask the question. I do manage the race weeks quite explicitly. So like simple things like I'll, I'll make sure to have had my fill of uh, recreation, which mainly involves riding mountain bikes, sadly for me. Uh, my own, my fill of mountain time, outdoor time, recreation, riding bikes, taking risk, actually, probably. Um, 
and family time before I leave. So I'll have had my fill of the things that kind of fill my tank pretty much. And I'll be organized in terms of I'll have, you know, I'll have sent out kind of the pre-race, what we call the homework sheets, like analysis of previous events at the track at that venue. So I'll have, I'll, I'll have, I'll have ticked kind of organizational logistic boxes quite well before I leave. So I, I basically, I'll just give myself the biggest buffer possible, physiologically, psychologically, give myself the biggest buffer possible before I get to the event. So that I'm, when I'm at the event, I'm not kind of being demanded from all directions and corners. Uh, in terms of explicit kind of uh, defining the, the boundaries of the relationship and stuff with the athletes, I probably don't do it well enough, probably should do it better. Uh, but it, it, they are quite friendly relationships. And for me, like as a coaching style, it's like um, professional, but friendly is kind of maybe the moniker. I don't really know how I manage it, but like definitely treat everyone as a, uh, try to cultivate the relationship in su such a way that if they want to move on and be coached by someone else, that we'll still be friends basically for life. That's kind of the way I feel it works best. So that means boundaries maybe aren't set the best at times, but the way I'll operate is basically early in the week before we actually get on track, I'll make time for myself in between the actual coaching work. So that'll mean early mornings when the athletes are still asleep, which is fine by me because I like early mornings. Um, that'll mean just looking after my own body, getting outdoors, seeing nature for a little bit. Um, and then just being strategic with time management. Like I know all of the athletes will be busy between these hours because they've got media to do. They've got massages. They've got this. So I'll be like, look, if you need me, I'm riding bikes or I'm off walking or I'm in the river or I'm wherever I am. Um, if you need me, you can contact me, but you know, I won't actually be physically here. So, you know, it's just simple communication. And then once we actually get on track, it's just easier to be on demand, not 24 seven, but to be on demand. It's just easier. I'll just do a better job if I'm, I'm on demand from 6am to 10pm. It's just easier to do a better job. Hence why you're probably quite tired post race. But for me, it's just easier. You know, I wake up in the morning have a coffee and I'm just switched on ready to go for the day until analysis is done that night. And that's fine by me. You know, it's only Thursday, Wednesday through Saturday, Thursday through Sunday. It's not that, it's not the end of the world, like for me anyway, personally. So that's how we, that's how we manage it. And I, I enjoy it, which is maybe the main thing. You know, I don't, I don't make enough money to not enjoy it. <laughs> There's another uh, coaching wellness conundrum is how much money you should be making for dedicating 14 hours of your day for half the year, you know? So, because if you're getting paid by the hour, I'd be a millionaire. So, <laughs> well, yeah, nobody gets into sport to be to be a millionaire. Certainly not sport coaching. Definitely not. Um, so if if I can um reflect back to you some of the things uh, that I'm hearing and maybe put it into uh, a concept over a model of health that I think um you engage in tacitly, yep. um, but intentionally that serves to um, develop some resilience in you towards the asymmetrical nature of the coach-athlete relationship mm -hmm. and therefore um, your ability to perform uh, uh, and comprehend uh, and manage the demands that are being uh, placed on you um, with a degree of meaningfulness uh, in terms of your engagement with the work. Have you heard of... Um, uh, salute to Genesis before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, it, I actually because I uh, speak French uh, fairly well. Um, 
words with Latin roots or Greek roots uh, are very easy for me to, you know what I mean? I think yeah. the, the the amount of Latin words in the English language is kind of intentionally forgotten for, you know, primarily English speakers for monoglots. So um, actually, yeah, Saluto Genesis, it's just like, it's an instant comprehension because you have Salu and Genesis, which is two, you know, kind of Latin words. Yeah. So yeah, I know the concept somewhat well. Andy Kirkland, I think, is where I would have seen it or learned it, I think. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, Andy and I are colleagues at, at the University right, okay, of Stirling. Cool. Um, and in essence, the what what Salute Genesis talks about is developing a, a sense of coherence uh, within a chaotic world underpinned by uh, a set of resistance resources that are both internal and external to the to the individual. Right, okay. um, the internal resources being around, you know, positive health behaviours, um, having a degree of intellect and understanding around. Um, who you are as an individual, the self-awareness to recognise when uh, the same stressor affects you differently in the in the context of your role yeah. might it might indicate that there's something going on here, and you might yeah. then proactively do do something uh, about that. Yeah. Um, the external resistance resources being around the social networks that you lean into, um, although it, it it strikes me and forgive me if I am overstepping, there perhaps isn't necessarily that individual that you might lean on to explore some of the complex interactions that you're having with the athletes and how they play out in the context of your thoughts, reflections, um, uh, tensions that may arise internally within you as you continue to make sense of those. I might be overstepping, I might be wrong, but certainly Salute Genesis for me is 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 a model of, of, of health that I think we need to explore a lot more in sport coaching because yep. The, the deficit model of of disease that exists where support for individuals is only ever unlocked when there's a clinical diagnosis and that clinical diagnosis is reliant upon a coaches being aware that there's something going on and two having the courage to disclose yep. means that so many coaches suffer in silence around their well-being or on the brink of burnout um, because uh, their ideations of their notions of what it means to be healthy, uh, not just as a human being, but as a coach, simply aren't there. Yeah, 100%. It's quite um, profound, deep. Um, and it, it actually, I think it all, for me anyway, because I'm acutely aware of my coaching practice or actively search out to not use a deficit model to improve performance. And that probably, like we discussed before we recorded, being a bit of a, of a certain generation from Ireland um, being semi-contrarian uh, because that was culturally what was what was actually happening at the time as the Catholic Church fell apart. <laughs> and, um, I think, yeah, being aware that a deficit model and, well, yeah, just a deficit model of health and performance, which are extensions of the same thing, extensions of the same philosophy, extensions of the same thought processes that extend from the same philosophy. Philosophy just runs the whole show, really. Um, are just not good enough for the athletes. And the and, and I, I've lost, you know, or I've had relationships with athletes break down to the point where we just decided not to work with each other anymore because the athletes wanted to pursue the deficit model. What are my weaknesses? Let's kill my weaknesses. And I was like, you won't win races beating weak. You won't win races chasing these weaknesses because we, we can't improve them enough to the point where you think they can be improved to. Like we will only, in my personal professional opinion, we will only win races if we continue to amplify your strengths. 
and do what we can around the deficits, you know, or chip away at the deficits in a long-term, continued long-term fashion. And the relationships broke down because my philosophical viewpoint was just, you know, starkly different to theirs. And I think, yeah, for coaches to, to think that, yeah, they only need friendships and psychological support and exercise. Oh, actually, this is, you've hit the nail on the head now. I'd just be off. I could rant for the next hour. But off fuck me. Fuck me. Like, like the notion of like, I need my 8,000 steps today. No, you don't. I don't care how many steps you got today. You need to go outside. You need to see the sunrise and the sunset because there's an actual biological, you know, chemical impact of seeing the sunrise and the sunset. There's an actual, there's an underpinning f- some sort of actual physiological response to seeing green and, and blue spaces you need to see green and blue i don't care how many steps you get now if if the motivation to get you to see green green and blue is eight thousand steps well let's start with eight thousand steps but eventually i'll get rid of your eight thousand steps because i couldn't care less about your steps so the quant the quantification and deficit models of performance for athletes for me has its place at times it's just, you know, you cherry pick what's needed at the time. You, you're like, okay, we've got a 25% deficit in the left leg because you snapped it off. Yes, okay, let's let's get rid of the 25% deficit to a point, but also let's let's work on, you know, creating health and performance um, with that or as the, as the main goal, you know, driving, you know, a global view of how you're going to perform on your bike, not just removing the deficit. And I think for coaches, it's my philosophy is exactly the same. So that's probably why I operate how I operate. In that for me, it's like I need to fill my own tank. I need to be acutely aware of, like you said, when stressor X is is leading to output Z, not Y. And output Z is a big red flag, and I need to manage that now. And I, I'm I'm lucky. I'm suppose I've got you know maybe the 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 empirical knowledge around anatomy and physiology and biology and you know very basic knowledge of those domains that I need to be an effective coach that helps me manage myself so I'm like look okay like so and so said this did this this is happening I've been I've been asked to stay until Sunday night at 8pm as opposed to leaving Sunday morning at 6am I won't see the kids no 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 like I'm I've got enough I think experience and enough knowledge about myself to manage these things but i think a lot of coaches probably don't you know and, and it's when it's when eventually your own experience and your own abilities are just overwhelmed and resilience is just breaks down is non-existent then that's when you need the support network and you need other people or you need perspective i think perspective is something that i ask the athletes to find regularly mm. when, when they're having tr- trouble making a decision or they're having trouble seeing their own progress especially you know they've made you know boatload of progress in many domains and they still only finished 35th and last year they made no progress and they were 35th and i was like yeah but you don't you don't have control over 35th or 55th or 25th you do not control the result hence we need perspective so i think i I asked them to get perspective so i suppose anything i asked them to get or obtain or understand i need to ask myself to do the same you know because like we said we're performers at the end of the day so gaining perspective around those sorts of Gaining perspective around what doesn't doesn't feed my resilience in f- face of this asymmetric relationship, which it will always be, is um, is definitely key. Yeah, there you go. There's lots lots to unpack, especially around deficit models and quantification and mechanistic views of human performance. I could I could burn a house down or two around that. <laughs> well, let's leave the batches in the box just now. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that the question I want to lean into is culturally 
Um, so I, I look at uh, coaches within um, heavily structured, uh, well-designed uh, performance pathway systems. Mm. You know, they've all got their pyramids. Jeez, um, I, hate a, I hate a pyramid. <laughs> everybody hates a pyramid. They've all got their pyramids or, or their uh, well-defined routes to the top for the athlete and of course um, the boundary markers for those uh, create stages and blocks of development that athletes need to go through and then you perhaps create create then systems wherein uh, coaches naturally fall into those blocks with a degree of expertise about how they transition athletes from one stage of development uh, to the next but but certainly within the, the British system there's a a shed ton of upward pressure of 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 coaches who in essence use the athletes to progress their own careers and therefore lose sight of um, who they are uh, as people because they're so entrenched in this um, competitive world of uh, progressing through the performance system as a coach to work with world-class athletes right you you seem to have found yourself there without necessarily chasing that um, and you, it seems to me that you've found your own way um, and you've evolved your own and matured your own perspective, not just of coaching, but who you are as a coach within that world. What, what influenced that perspective? I don't really know, to be totally honest. I honestly, I, do, I, do, I don't really have a full insight into how or why. <laughs> um, like maybe, you know, upbringing a family has has stuff something to do with it um being curious has always been something i've been aware of from a relatively young age you know slightly different to peers even from a young age uh an only child which many people can probably tell when they listen to me um definitely when they interact with me they can probably tell an only child but i was definitely curious from a young age to the point where you know i'd immerse myself in in a book or in play like solo play like with cars or toys or whatever else for hours on end so being curious is definitely a big driver of it and being genuinely curious without any kind of bullshit attached to it means that you're probably quite adverse or aware of other people's bullshit and very very aware of how much you don't know and how much you'll never know and the uncertainty around what you think you know so like i said to you already when i discovered that philosophy was actually a thing like I had my coaching philosophy apparently that I wrote down because I was asked to write it down at some coaching seminar once. But then I was aware of actually our philosophy. You know, I, everyone knows what, you know, the great philosophers, Aristotle or whatever, everyone understands that concept, but actually philosophy is a thing. I was like, oh no, hold on. There is a thing here about the nature of knowledge. Like how do we know what we know and how do we know what we know is real? And I was like, oh fuck, right. Okay, so this is, I was getting there on my own having not not knowing that this was actually a, a domain of of interest and research for thousands of years since the dawn of man probably so i was like ah right okay so i think that's probably why there's a level of the curiosity drives a level of humility i think basically that's probably why and then i was pretty quick to understand the okay i was asked to write down my coaching philosophy and on its own it was useless basically (laughs) so then i realized okay i need i need these principles so I, I would have got the concept of principles that go with my philosophy from from some research paper or from someone else on Twitter. Or, you know, I, I magpied it from somewhere. 
Um, and so then I was like, actually, the principles are what's driving the bus here. So the principles are kind of ethics driven, you know, so like person focused, you know, performance driven, that sort of thing. So the, the first few principles are like around focused on a human. We are performance driven because that helps us decide what we focus on, what we don't focus on. But that doesn't mean we forget the person because person focus comes before performance driven. So like layers of principles that come from a philosophy and then that feeds into methods and that feeds into my behaviors and the behaviors have a direct link to the principles without the methods because the behaviors are ethically driven and the ethics and the principles go together. So I realized that I had this framework that I'd made uh, in a non-explicit way that was working to a point and then I explicitly wrote it down. So then I was more aware of what was good and bad and what I was working with. So that's probably where, so basically at the bottom, maybe the bottom line is the curiosity drove the whole ship basically because the curiosity allowed me to realize that I was dumb about many domains and it allowed me also to realize that actually no i'm i'm actually quite good at this or i have a good grasp of this idea this theory or someone else has come to this conclusion in a completely different domain through a similar route so i'm not a complete dope um so that's probably why yeah, the curiosity probably drove the whole bus to get me to where i am and then the curiosity drives the continued search for it doesn't even drive the search for answers like i've got a book here in front of me on visual perception and it's so far above my pay grade. Like it is so far beyond the mathematics involved. I'm just like, oh, right. So people actually, oh, right. <laughs> like, oh, ooh, maths, I'm not very good at, I can add, I can subtract. That's about as far as I go, you know? Um, so I like, but I, I'll happily, I'll happily just trudge through the chapters that I can understand in the knowledge that down the line, eventually some of it will make a lot more sense to me. So I kind of am happy to, to, put effort in now for far far long-term gain and happy to be curious forever and happy to not know anything forever and that's probably what drives the bus really around the whole that drives the bus around the whole ship and that probably feeds back into the salutogenesis idea of looking after myself because curiosity is cognitively expensive so uh, yes um i would i would i would definitely agree with that and I don't know whether or not you're aware of the um, concepts of the need for cognition or the need for cognitive closure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, the need for cognition is something I read about a few years ago, and I was just like, the need for cognition happens when I ride a bicycle up a hill. <laughs> when the blood gets flowing, that's when I cogn I cognize. So yeah, totally. The need for cognition, the need the time to ruminate. You know what I mean? You got to chew the cud, like so, hundred percent. Yeah. No, for sure, and and look, I think we're we're quite similar in that regard. Where, um, I I would like to stew over something. I I actually take great enjoyment in in sitting and reflecting upon something and making sense of something. Um, but equally, I think we, I guess this is why we we're brought together in this podcast. We we both share a healthy skepticism sometimes of of perspectives on and perspectives in sport coaching. And look, we explored before we jumped on and, and, and recorded that we both share the same experience of, of growing up uh, in Ireland and, and coming of age at a time when uh, I wouldn't say the Catholic Church collapsed, as you said, but the influence the Catholic Church had over um, how people in Ireland thought uh, viewed the world um, collapsed in, in and around them. Um, it was actually probably the, the liberalisation of the economy is what drove it. 100%. Yeah, the integration of multinationals, more money coming. That's probably what actually drove it was 
or in part anyway yeah for sure liberalization of the economy along with the the dismantling of the influence of the catholic church 100 we might have some good catholics listening so we won't don't lambast them you can you can worship anything you want i'm happy no no 100 percent. there's there's no there's no judgment here and, and uh j- just as a bit of an aside we can still see the, the influence of the catholic church on uh, on ourselves and i'm going to lean into catholic guilt a little bit with with you chris and uh, and to quote Jeremy Paxman when he's describing uh, the the British sometimes that we engage sometimes in this um, game of competitive one-downmanship and you talk uh, about knowing a little bit about a lot and I would contest that you know a lot about a lot um, uh, and, and your ability to question and make sense of um, and critique uh, things that are put out um, within the academic realms, but equally holding people to account for what they put out on Twitter um, comes from a, a place of immense um, intellectual resource that I, uh, perhaps you're, you're, you're not aware of uh, how well-rounded and how rich your perspective is that you're able to uh, quite quickly and, and articulately um, critique um, somebody's uh, perspective and lean into any number of theoretical perspectives to do so. So that's something that um, I admire in you, and and I've reached out uh, on a few occasions um, to, to to say so um, because I I think it deserves it it deserves merit, and I think perhaps both of us get into trouble sometimes for um, engaging in dialogue that might be perceived on one side to be um, overly critical, but equal, but but in my view, over trying to do is hold people to account for what they put out there i think uh, well that's a huge compliment so thank you um i think to keep the religious team on on track um <laughs> sometimes you're seen as being um blasphemous and incredulous if you um have any sort of um questioning around narratives especially like a twitter is a shocking place for it like Elon gave us a few more characters, but or maybe the characters came before Elon. I can't remember. But um, like, yeah, we have a few more characters now that we can actually be slightly more articulate and pinpoint in, in a discussion. But unfortunately, you just end up talking past each other, especially because you end up writing four tweets as someone else is writing four tweets. And then you get eight tweets that no one understands the order of. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I've, I honestly, I've got no choice. It's not it's not something like divine, like a calling, because that's just ridiculous. I don't believe in anything divine personally. Um, but the curiosity basically gives me no choice but to to engage at a at a at the best level I can in terms of if if I think it's either incorrect or ill informed or badly positioned or complete and utter bullshit. Um I'll just I just yeah. I, I, if I'm busy, I won't engage whatsoever because I won't go on Twitter if I'm coaching or I'm at the races or I'm doing whatever. Um, but if if I have the smallest amount of time and I think the, the the back and forth discussion will give me, it's probably quite selfish, will give me some sort of benefit in terms of my own um, practice, then I'll, I'll get stuck in. And I think it is it is selfish to a point, but it's selfish in a, in a nice way. <laughs> um, because like you talked about with Cellular Genesis and general support networks for coaches, for me, I'm relatively isolated here. I don't have a governing body. I don't work with a team of coaches. Like you might work in the rugby 
environment with you know the physical preparation people in the gym the forwards coach the backs coach the heads coach the psychologist whatever the team has you have all of these people to to shoot the shit with at you know at lunch and to talk over and you might have different age groups different sexes different everything or i kind of don't so i i find sometimes that i need you know if i'm feeling kind of somewhat isolated here at home in the alps um and i need something that isn't just riding bikes up and down hills then um i'll just get stuck in on a bit of a twitter engagement to to just have to get the old cognitive juices flowing i suppose because it helps me organize my thoughts as well you know if i think i have a better perspective or my perspective is more informed by the evidence or i can maybe help someone see that their perspective is slightly narrow or my own perspective is narrow and i need someone else to attack me so i can open up my own perspective then i'll just get stuck in for yeah for many benefits for everyone hopefully yeah and and look for the benefit of those listening at it's fair to say that the perspective we were probably both critical of sometimes is 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 ecological dynamics and and i think to caveat that um, and we've had conversations in the background i i don't i don't deny some of the tenets of ecological dynamics but but i think we just need to be more nuanced and sophisticated about where we situated in the in the broader conversation around what sport coaching is and yeah. and, and, and and what it isn't there, there's no denying that um where decisions are made in in in, in split seconds uh, through a combination of both top down and bottom up um, processes, um, an interaction between direct and indirect perception, um, and the mechanisms that uh, afford that, um, I think uh, still need to um, be clarified. Yeah, I I still don't think that we're we're there yet because I'm I struggle to make sense of the the claims made within ecological dynamics about the explanatory power of that perspective on how decisions are made in context. Um, but equally, I, I think there are some shortfalls uh, in um, some of the psychological perspectives around around that as well. And somewhere in the middle, once we stop talking past each other, um, we might find um, some sort of um, clarity and, dare I say, brevity around um, uh, what what's going on there but we're not quite there yet because um it's too adversarial and look uh, i'm uh, fully aware that i've created some of that tension with the way that i've interacted with individuals fight 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 yeah, yeah to, to some extent but um nothing fucks me off more than people taking a moral high ground um on uh on things when there is gaslighting going on in, in plain sight around mm. um uh, what's the right way to say this uh creating a, effectively a culture war between differing perspectives and in, in sport coaching that, yeah, that, that is that is that what doesn't happening. that doesn't need to exist like it's kind of like it's unnecessarily dichotomous which is which is what led me to question um the veracity of of ecological dynamics um i think in, in terms of twitter interactions actually i've probably muted more people from the strength and conditioning side because <laughs> i actually i i enjoy the 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 dualism sometimes of you know the the supposed ecological dynamics versus cognitive psychology or information processing stuff um i'm, I'm currently i'm getting a lot from it i think in, in terms of my own interest and practice so i'll leave it be there's actually there's a lot of stuff on, on S&C Twitter, which which makes me 
roll my eyeballs 180 360 um so i think yeah i there's there's lots on Twitter that's bad, but if we if we there's lots on Twitter that's good and bad, and if we, if you do want to unpack the like the the whole ecological dynamics and and the, the unnecessary arguments and battles that go on there, and for me I was like I was I was I was taken with it when I initially came across some of the research papers that were that were coming out. Um, I won't name the researchers off off the top of my head because they, I probably follow them all and we all follow each other on Twitter. But some of the stuff is, I just thought, this is it. This is fantastic. Like this is, this is my, this is, this speaks to me because this is how I coach already. And then as I got a bit more educated on the topic and the the veracity of the theories underpinning it, and the connection between dynamical systems theory, complex systems sciences, complex systems mathematics, thermodynamics, direct perception as being the core part of ecological psychology. And um, when I realized all of these things existed independently before it created ecological dynamics, and I dug it, dug in a little bit deeper to those foundational theories that were then joined to make EcoD, I was like, ah, there's a few holes here, right? I'm very curious, as, as we've said, and I was like, right, there's some big old holes here. So then I kind of said to myself, actually, what I like about this is the, the hat tip to non-linearity, the nods to complexity, and all of these things that are very, very much part of you know, it's systems thinking. So human systems within ecological systems, within larger ecological systems, within micro macro social systems and everything else. And then I was like, oh, well, Bronnenfenner's feckin ecological theory of, you know, systems gets me 60% of the way here, you know, or more. And then I, I started, you know, um, talking to and, and um, working with some cognitive psychologists who did a lot of work in motorsport. And obviously we've, we've got a lot of um, similarities in terms of track l learning tracks with mountain biking and motorsport, very different tracks, but similar visual perceptual skills that go into this. And I was like, ah, right. So hold on. So there's, there's a lot of value here in like, I, I might not agree with the nature of computation at its at its most pure. Um, but then I having re-engaged with cognitive psychology on, on a far more even keel and a far more honest level, I was like, right. So when you tell me computational um, processes used for the brain. You do not mean the brain is a Dell or an Apple computer. Right? This is this is not what it means. It does not mean that your brain. It basically means that the inspiration for computation in your Dell somewhat kind of came a little bit from how the brain might work. That's basically where the relationship is. It's computation, and the word computare in Latin is millennia old. So like settle down. Right. A computation does not mean your head is a Dell and your body is piece of hardware so once i grasped all those things i was like ah so there's, there's a whole lot of, like you said a whole lot of nuance to this and while there is huge value in um the constraints led approach especially i was even you know i had this interaction on twitter recently i was like does the constraints led approach even need does it need direct perception i don't think it does i don't think it does and i, I think if you ask if, if you get beyond the anglosphere and you go beyond the english language and you find you'll find someone somewhere who's come up with the constraints led approach before or after Newell, having never known Newell existed. Guarante I can guarantee the world is just too, it's just, the interactions with our environments are just too common for us not to eventually get to the same conclusions type thing, you know what I mean? And that's really where, for me, that's where the, the power of something like the constraints that approach is that it's it's very naturalistic, but there's a lot of naturalistic um, ecological ways of thinking and doing that apply to sports coaching that have nothing to do with ecological dynamics. 
naturalistic and ecological thinking um even embodied cognition and everything else like they're they're not hodgepodge ways of doing things that are just inferior to ecological dynamics they're just different ways of doing things and like you said just like actually coaching regularly like i do like putting you know bread on the table with money that i get from coaching means that like i need to i need to do a good job understanding what's underpinning my practice here so i came to the you know swift conclusion that while there's many things about ecological dynamics that i love uh, direct perception especially i can't get on board with just yet if the evidence goes and somehow somewhere down the line it's like actually direct perception is the thing it's just you need to rework it a little bit then i'll be like yes sweet but for now you know like you said top down bottom up processes working together there's something there's something else going on that's why birds fly but we fly jumbo jets <laughs> that, uh, that strikes me as a really nice uh, place to to shut down the pod in jumbo jets <laughs> jumbo jets um look i'm i'm as i said before i'm i'm really grateful um to you for jumping on and, and being really generous with your time I've, I've stolen an hour and a half um uh, in in a week leading up to to the UCI here in Scotland, so I understand how time is precious. So, thank you for coming on, and thank you for um, exploring uh, an enumerate number of um, perspectives, not just in sport coaching, but in in philosophy, in health and well being, um, and everything else uh, in between. Of course, religion was in there somewhere as well. The Catholic Church got a bashing. Why not? <laughs> Two Irish fellas on a podcast. <laughs> That's fine. We're probably opening the door on on uh, uh, to another perspective on on Twitter to come and uh, create right. more arguments with us now. So that's fantastic. That <laughs> uh, that strikes me as a really nice uh, place to to shut down the pod. In jumbo jets. Jumbo jets. Um, look, I'm, I'm, as I said before, I'm, I'm really grateful um, to you for jumping on and, and being really generous with your time. I've, I've stolen an hour and a half um, uh, in, in a week leading up to, to the UCI here in Scotland, so I understand how time is precious. So thank you for coming on and thank you for um, exploring uh, an enumerate number of um, perspectives, not just in sport coaching, but in, in philosophy and health and well-being. Um, uh, and everything else uh, in between. Of course, religion was in there somewhere as well. The Catholic Church got a bashing. Why yeah. not? Two I Irish fellas on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. We're, we're probably opening the door on, on uh, uh, to another perspective on, on Twitter to come and uh, create right. more arguments with us now. So that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs>